0: Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, again, we're having a chat about the Satsuma Rebellion, a military revolt that took place in Japan in 1877 and is considered to be a massive turning point in the country's history. This revolt took place after the Meiji Restoration, uh, which turned political and military power structures within Japan on their heads as the country began to rapidly modernise after opening up to the international world after 250 years of near total isolation. But not everyone, not everyone was in favour of this modernisation. Namely, the samurai class was dead against it. Uh, reason being, the samurai class had previously wielded considerable political and military power throughout feudal Japan. And so they were none too pleased to see the end of the feudal system. Um, because that's that's the situation. The, with, with, the, with the major restoration, the feudal system was well and truly on its way out. Uh, and some people weren't prepared to accept this fate quietly. In 1877... Samurai Saigo Takamori raised his banner in rebellion against the imperial government from his home region of Satsuma, hence the name Satsuma Rebellion. And Saigo took the fight to imperial forces in order to in order to try to preserve the old ways. And this rebellion, as I said before, was a turning point for Japan with a range of very important consequences for the country. And there are a couple of interesting stories that have emerged from it as well, most notably uh, a battle wherein highly trained, traditionally armed samurai wielding swords charged a modern, for the time, conscript army with artillery and gatling guns. You'll find out how that particular engagement went in due course as we get stuck into this story. So much to get across today as ever, but a quick thank you before we begin to alert listeners Lucas Sticks and David Schultz, both of whom had suggested the Satsuma Rebellion as a topic for the show. So here you go, boys. Hope you enjoy it. Uh, It was interesting to get across all of this, so hopefully all the listeners out there get something out of it as well. Anyway, a lot to talk about, of course. Let's get to it. Let's get stuck in. Down the track we go with the story of the Satsuma Rebellion. Off we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back. To the mid-19th century, to the Meiji Restoration, as, as I said before, that's the starting point to set, that sets the sets the background for this story. Um, the Meiji Restoration was the point at which Japan was more or less forced, really, to abandon its policy of isolation, Sokoku, as it was called, uh, and and open up to the world. We've talked about Sokoku before. You may remember uh, episodes 117 and 232, get across them. Uh, but in short, Sokoku refers to the foreign policy of Japan Between around the 1630s uh, through to the 1850s, so a period of over 200 years, wherein Japan was essentially just closed, right? No foreigners were allowed into the country. Japanese people weren't allowed to leave. There was hardly any diplomacy or trade or interaction of any kind, really, with the rest of the world. There There were a couple of ports where foreign ships could dock and there was some some minor trading and interaction going on with the outside world but for the most part japan was just it was just closed up right just closed up completely but then in 1853 that all changed because commodore matthew perry from oh say can you see the united states of america the greatest nation in the country he arrived on the shores of japan with a very respectfully delivered request that japan perhaps open itself up to foreign trade. And this request was not only delivered very respectfully, as I say, but also delivered by four enormous warships bristling with guns. And these warships, again, very respectfully pointed these guns at buildings on the coast and, again, so respectfully fired blank rounds out of them so as to scare and intimidate the Japanese. And it worked. The U.S. once again spreading its greatest international export, freedom. In this case, the freedom not to be invaded and colonized. And so Japan was basically forced to open up to the world under the threat of military force from the United States. Japan being forced to open up like this led directly to the Meiji Restoration. In 1866, political reformists abolished the Tokugawa shogunate. You can hear about how the shogunate was established in episode 232, Get Across It and restored power to the emperor. Before this, imperial rulers had been really little more than figureheads. The real power was, of course, concentrated in the hands of the shogun, the military dictator who actually ran things in Japan. But with the Meiji Restoration, Japan moved away from a feudal economy into a more modern market based economy. And a huge amount of change and reform took place as the nation continued to modernize and become more and more involved with the outside world political reform, industrial reform, social reform, cultural reform. But most importantly for this story, military reform. This is what brings us to the Satsuma Rebellion. It was, more than anything else, the post-Meiji Restoration military reforms that characterised this revolt. Why? Well, I mentioned that Japan left behind its feudal ways, right, in the wake of the Meiji Restoration. And there is one class of people that suffered mightily as a result of this change, the samurai class the hereditary military nobility of feudal Japan. Wealthy landowners who had held enormous social, political and military power thanks to their prestige, their privileged position. At the time of the Meiji Restoration, around 5% of the population of Japan were of the samurai class. That's a lot of people who felt disempowered and left behind by the changes that the country was going through. A lot of people who weren't happy about these changes. And I mean, you wouldn't be, would you? Losing your grip on, on on power as a land-owning elite. All of a sudden the regional power structures that have supported you and your forebears for centuries are being undone as the imperial government in Tokyo is consolidating power, looking to create a centralized conscript army that is gonna undo a lot of the weight that you can throw around in your particular corner of the country. So it's no wonder that people are upset, and it's against this backdrop of general discontent amongst the samurai class that we meet the central figure of the story of the Satsuma Rebellion, a bloke whose name was Saigo Takamori, a samurai from the Satsuma domain, as I mentioned, uh, Satsuma domain being right down on the southernmost point of the southern Japanese island of Kyushu, today it's known as Kagoshima Prefecture, Anyway, Saigo, uh, around the time of the Meiji Restoration, was was a major figure within this political transformation that Japan undertook. He was one of the reformists that uh, that saw the Meiji Restoration strip power away from the shogunate and, and sort of propel Japan into this new chapter of its history. And uh, some of the reforms that he was heavily involved with, that he was crucial in getting across the line, uh, such as the creation of a centralized imperial conscript army. Some of these reforms would come back to really bite him on the ass, uh, as you'll discover. Anyway, Saigo was part of this central group of reformists that, uh, that saw the Meiji Restoration become reality, but... As we move into the 1870s, Saigo didn't agree with the direction that Japan was taking now that the restoration had happened. He opposed ongoing major international involvement. He didn't want Japan trading with other nations or modernizing by doing things like building railroads. Instead, he actually wanted to stick with many of the country's old ways. He wanted to stick to what Japan knew to focus on traditional Japanese pursuits like I don't know, going to war with Korea. In fact, he was so determined for Japan to go to war with Korea that he offered to travel over to Korea as a diplomat and then be just like super, super rude and obnoxious and insulting to them until they killed him, right, which would then be an excuse for Japan to beat the war drums and invade Korea because they'd killed this bloke sent over there as a diplomat. That's how horny for war this guy was. He was ready to sacrifice his own life just so Japan could justify attacking Korea. Anyway, none of this worked out for Saigo. He's swimming against the tide of historical progress. And so eventually he resigned from the newly empowered uh, imperial government that he had helped build in around 1874. Saga returned instead to his native Satsuma domain, which I might point out was a very powerful part of Japan at this time. Uh, throughout much of the Tokugawa Shogunate before the Meiji Restoration, Satsuma had, uh, had a good amount of autonomy, uh, generally wasn't interfered with all that much by the Japanese government in Edo, uh, very well-armed part of the country as well, with weapons factories, uh, military shipyards, stockpiles of armaments, all that sort of stuff. Um, and even though this military infrastructure was technically under the authority of the central japanese government uh as i said satsuma enjoyed a fair bit of autonomy and these weapons and shipyards and whatever else are all under local control anyway so i go heads back there back to the city of kagashima uh and after he got back a couple of different things happened right in 1874 He opened up a private military academy. This academy trained students in the art of war. It offered them weapons and artillery training, uh, as well as teaching them about strategy and tactics and all sorts. Uh, And more branches of this academy opened up throughout Satsuma in the months that followed, establishing what was essentially a private paramilitary made up of graduates from the academy. Secondly... Disgruntled and disaffected samurai were invited to take up powerful political positions in the government of Satsuma. A chance to regain their lost power, uh, a chance for them to reclaim a position of superiority as things had been before. And you can imagine many of them say, Yes, please. Samurai flocked to Satsuma and were granted political offices of all kinds. And thirdly, these two other factors meant that Saigo Takamori ended up being an enormously popular figure. In Satsuma. He had strong support from all echelons of society, but most importantly, from the military that he had helped to bolster in his homelands. I mentioned before there was a trend of moving away from regional power structures and the regional concentration of power. Well, Saiga was fighting against that, and he had the backing of the people that he that he was helping to build up as a regional military power in Satsuma. Bottom line is this. By 1876, not only was Satsuma in possession of significant existing military infrastructure and hardware, not only were they churning out highly trained military academy graduates to form a paramilitary brigade, but the former elite military ruling class is also gathering there and regaining the power they lost, and the whole region is being led by a very popular local figure in Saigo. So, Satsuma had, by this stage, essentially thrown off the influence of the imperial government. It was, de facto, an independent realm, given its military might. And in the imperial capital of Tokyo, freshly renamed from Edo in 1868... This was a very concerning situation as the imperial government had already had to deal with a bunch of small samurai rebellions and revolts in the wake of the Meiji Restoration, and as I said, were very keen to consolidate power in Tokyo and move away from this regionalised power structure that had dominated the country for the centuries previous. Not everyone was moving with the times, however, and while the other rebellions that they'd faced had been shut down, the prospect of Satsuma rising up against the imperial government, led by one of the former government leaders in Saigo, very worrisome indeed. And so, in late 1876, the imperial authorities, they sent around 50 or 60 spies into Satsuma just for a quick vibe check mate. What's going on down there? How likely are we to face an open revolt led by Saigo and his samurai, given the the weapons and resources and infrastructure that they have? Well, these spies do a very, very poor job of remembering the lessons that you presumably get taught in spy school. Uh, Rule number one, I have to imagine, is don't get caught. And they did get caught. And some of them are tortured until they confess that they were sent to assassinate Saigo. Now, whether they actually were sent to assassinate Saigo, well, that's another question. There is reason to believe that that isn't quite the case. Uh, What reason, you may ask? Well, the reason is that Saigo, just as he had wanted to trick Korea into giving Japan a casus belli, may have just tricked Tokyo into giving Satsuma a casus belli. Saigo made a huge deal out of the fact that these so-called assassins had supposedly been a real threat to his life, and Whether this was true or not, it didn't matter. He used it to start drumming up support for open rebellion, claiming that the imperial government was overreaching, oppressing the good people of Satsuma, attempting to murder their beloved leader. So, of course, the only way forward was revolt. Saigo's popularity meant that the people in Satsuma, particularly the samurai, they went along with his reasoning. And so rebellion really was on the wind. On the 30th of January, Tokyo responded by sending a warship down to Satsuma to try to intimidate them. Hey, it had worked for Matthew Perry, hadn't it? Once the warship arrived, the crew aboard it raided the weapon stockpiles there in Satsuma, intending to confiscate these weapons and in doing so weaken any potential rebellion that might emerge. A smart move, you would think. A show of force, showing that they're not going to be mucked around with, they're going to take these weapons away and make sure that Satsuma doesn't rise up, except... That's exactly what Satsuma did. Locals gave the alarm when these raiders arrived and started trying to pillage the weapon stockpile. And so people flooded to the site of the raid. Students from the military academy, samurai that were there as well. And they fought back these imperial raiders and seized control of the stockpiles before they could be confiscated. It backfired enormously for the imperial government. The people that rushed to defend the interests of Satsuma, gave a very clear indication that this area was not just going to roll over and accept imperial authority. And it only got worse from there. In the coming days, emboldened by their victory over the raiders, more and more of the samurai and the students began to actively attack and resist imperial authority in Satsuma, going after their holdings, confiscating their weapons, parading them through towns and cities to show that the imperial government couldn't stand up to the rebels in Satsuma. And support for open rebellion grew and grew. Saigo decided that he stood ready to lead this rebellion against the imperial government in Tokyo. And so two weeks after the initial imperial raid, Over 10,000 troops, perhaps as many as 13,000 troops, were in Satsuma armed and ready to fight for the rebellion. Bad news for Tokyo, where they decided that they would have to mobilize this newly formed Imperial Japanese army, that centralized army of conscripts that I'd mentioned before. And with the mobilization of forces on both sides, the Satsuma Rebellion had begun. Saigo dressed himself in his old military uniform from years ago before his days of politicking, and with his troops in tow, he set off northwards towards Tokyo. He didn't leave anyone behind to defend Satsuma. This really was an all-or-nothing play from him. His army was delayed by heavy snowfalls, the heaviest apparently in half a century, but they pushed through all the same and they arrived at the imperial-controlled Kumamoto Prefecture on the 14th of February, 1877. Saigo's plan was to march all the way to Tokyo. Some had expected that he would sail to Tokyo directly or even just dig in in Satsuma and wait for the Imperials arrive and fight on home soil. But no, he marched northwards. And after arriving in Kumamoto Prefecture, the rebels came up against the first big roadblock that they'd have to overcome uh, in order to progress further north towards Tokyo, the mighty Kumamoto Castle. The rebels laid siege to the castle and open conflict began on the 19th as they began to attack its walls. The commander of the castle was put in a tricky position by this. Many of the people under his command actually had sympathies for Saigo and his rebels. He knew this, right? They were Kyushu locals. They were potentially very sympathetic to the downfall of the old regime of of, of samurai, the old power structure that had served Japan for so long. And so he was unwilling to order his troops to do anything other than stand and defend the castle. He worried that if he sallied forth with these men and attempted to take the fight to the rebels, many of them would immediately just defect. He knew that his troops would be unwilling to actively fight and kill the rebels. And I mean, the other reason not to take the fight to the rebels outside the castle walls was just the sheer numbers involved. I said before, Saigo perhaps had as many as 13,000 troops, and he was gaining more by the day as the rebellion picked up steam while there were only around 4,000 men defending the castle. So, those defending the castle from the inside, they just waited. They waited and hoped for imperial reinforcements, while the rebels staged a series of ultimately unsuccessful attacks. Despite their numerical advantage, the defensive advantage of the castle was a huge edge and it emerged that the rebel army wasn't actually as effective as Saigo may have hoped. While he did have many experienced fighting men and veteran samurai on his side, in addition to the students that had gone through his academy, most of the army that he commanded was young and inexperienced, little more than conscripts themselves, really. Still, many in Kumamoto Prefecture, specifically samurai, decided that they would join Saigo, that they would fall in with the rebel army, and just as the Imperials had feared, the rebel army grew and grew as a result to an estimated peak of 20,000 soldiers. But after these unsuccessful attacks on the castle, Saigo decided to take a different tack and instead made an attempt to starve the defenders out. It's winter, they are not well supplied in the castle, so maybe it would end up being a, a short siege and a quick victory. But even so, it was hard yakka for the sieging rebels, frozen ground, icy conditions, although they're not the ones running out of food, which is the important part. For the rest of February and into March, the rebels besieged the castle and supplies within it quickly began to dwindle. They were in desperate need of imperial reinforcements. And the imperial government in Tokyo, I have to say, they weren't sitting on their hands. They'd been organising the mobilisation of the imperial Japanese army, as I mentioned, and in early March, the vanguard of this army began to arrive in Kumamoto. On the 3rd of March, the Battle of Tabaruzaka began, and this battle would last for weeks and weeks. The rebels had deployed Samurai to secure the road leading to Kumamoto Castle, in an attempt to block any imperial advances towards the, the siege. And it's there that these samurai came up against early arrivals from the Imperial Japanese army. Fighting in heavy rains, both armies grew as the rebels redeployed troops from the siege to bolster the samurai forces on the road, and of course, on the other side of things, as more imperial troops arrived from the north. And the fighting continued for days and days, and its front spread further and further as more and more people arrived to fight. Believe it or not, the battle line between these two forces spread across 10 kilometres as the rebels tried to hold onto the road to the castle against an ever-increasing number of imperial forces. Ten kilometres of fighting. The battle spread from the town of Tabarazaka, north of Kumamoto Castle, all the way to the sea. But as the days passed, the tide turned against the rebels. They were low in ammunition. Their guns were suffering water damage thanks to the rain. They had to fight against all these reinforcements face-to-face, hand-to-hand with swords. And this didn't work out so well. On the 15th of March, with a decided numerical advantage, the Imperials pressed the attack against the rebels across this massive front, and within days, the rebel lines had broken under sheer weight of numbers, and they had to withdraw. More than anything, it was, as I say, just a question of numerical superiority. Despite the rebels having hardened veteran samurai amongst their number, the Imperials just had too many troops for them to fight off, and of course... The general quality of the rebel troops outside of the samurai wasn't that great. Even so, they're still enormously outnumbered. The rebels lost the Battle of Tabarazaka and so gave up the ground leading to Kumamoto Castle. And it was even worse back at home at Satsuma. Because during this time, the Imperials had sent a small contingent of troops to capture the undefended city of Kagoshima, which fell very quickly without anyone there to defend it. The Imperials approached from the north, along the road that they'd won, and they cut off rebel supplies from the south, from from Kagoshima. And to make things worse, on the 8th of April, the Imperial army was able to break through the siege lines surrounding Kumamoto Castle after furious fighting, and finally deliver supplies to the embattled people inside the castle. And this effectively broke the siege. Not an ideal situation for Saigo and his rebels, but... All is not lost. Recognizing how bad the rebel position was in Kumamoto, Saigo ordered a retreat to regroup and plan out his next move. Saigo and his troops marched for a week to Hitayoshi, which is between Kumamoto and Kagoshima. However, morale amongst his troops was at rock bottom after the string of defeats, and Saigo didn't have much of a plan for the rebels other than to dig in and defend themselves from the advancing Imperials. Except the Imperials bloody well took their time in arriving. Let me tell you this, the Imperials had suffered significant losses in Kimamoto and in Tabarazaka and they weren't in a hurry to expose themselves to further fighting just yet. So it was a fair few weeks before the Imperials had regrouped themselves and began the pursuit of the rebels southward and by then Saigo had decided on his next move. He spread his forces out, withdrawing further to the south with the bulk of his army and left behind small detachments of samurai to undertake hit-and-run raids against the advancing Imperials. However, the ragged bunch of men that he had with him were no match for the Imperials when they finally caught up with Saigo and the bulk of his forces. They approached from both the north and the south, and in July, it came to a head. The encircled rebel army was almost completely obliterated when the fighting began. I mentioned they had maybe as many as 20,000 troops. Well... After after sustaining extremely heavy losses, all that remained were around 3,000 rebels. They were somehow able to fight their way out of encirclement, and and, and they fled. Saigo was amongst them, leading their withdrawal, and these 3,000 rebels... They regrouped on Mount Enadaki along with the samurai that had been conducting those guerrilla raids. It is not looking good for the rebels. There are over 20,000 imperial troops bearing down on them. They are hopelessly outnumbered. So as to make absolutely sure that the rebellion was crushed once and for all, the imperials had sent way more troops than was needed for a total victory. There was nowhere for the rebels to go and not much left for them to do. So when this massive imperial force arrived at Mount Enidake, much of the rebel contingent realised that the game was up, and a lot of them, a huge proportion of them, surrendered. And they did this in one of two ways. Some took the traditional way, lay down your arms, allow yourself to be taken prisoner, off you go, thanks for playing. But others took a rather more permanent approach to the problem in front of them, they committed seppuku and ripped their own guts out in ritual suicide. Seppuku, as we've talked about in previous episodes, was a big part of Japanese samurai culture, an honourable, if pretty gruesome way to die, Uh, and it was common enough for those who reckoned that they were going to be taken prisoner to die by their own hand in this way rather than suffer the dishonour of capture. Disembowelling yourself... I mean, it takes some guts, I tell you what, it takes those guts right out of your body and puts them on the ground in front of you. But when given the choice between the dishonour of capture, as I say, and going out on your own terms, seppuku was usually perceived as the honourable way to go. It's remained part of Japanese military culture right through to the Second World War, too. Many commanding officers of the Imperial Japanese Army committed seppuku in 1945, when the Japanese were finally defeated, Anyway, that's how many of these rebels die back then in 1877 on their chosen hill. Their chosen hill being, in a very literal sense, Mount Enidake. Uh, And between the ones that surrendered and the ones that committed seppuku, there are only about 500 living rebels remaining. This includes Saigo. He's not ready to quit just yet. He and the few hundred that remain escaped the imperial forces, sneaking through the fog around the mountain, and then they headed south to the city of Kagoshima. So even with the Imperials absolutely dead set on making sure the rebels didn't escape, some of them still managed to escape. And the Satsuma Rebellion isn't quite over just yet. The remaining rebels arrived back in Kagoshima on the 1st of September, and they take up a new defensive position on a hilltop just outside the city in Shirayama. The Imperial Army wasn't too far behind, and when they arrived in Kagoshima, they didn't press the attack. They didn't wipe Saigo and the rebel remnant out there and then, no. Instead, they took a slower and more measured and definite approach for the simple reason that these rebels had slipped through the Imperial net twice already and it was not going to happen a third time. The Imperials dug trenches and built fortifications that encircled the entire city and then divided up their forces to watch the entire perimeter Of these fortifications. The Imperials now have 30,000 troops deployed to hunt down just 500 remaining rebels. But as I say, they're not taking any chances. So much so that the Imperials are more than prepared to engage in some pretty extreme overkill. The orders given, listen to this, the orders given to artillery units and the warships in the waters around Kagoshima, they're pretty full-on Right. Have a listen to this. The orders were that when the rebels were found, when the fighting began, the artillery and the ships were ordered to get this. They were ordered to mercilessly bombard any engagement between rebel and imperial forces, regardless of friendly fire or collateral damage or anything like that. And on top of that, all of the contingents that were spread around the city encircling Kagoshima, they were ordered not to move from their positions to support or bolster any other contingents that had engaged the rebels. And why, you might ask, because if the rebels were to stage a diversionary attack and lure other forces away, then perhaps Other rebels might escape through a hole in the encirclement that the diversionary attack had created. Pretty brutal orders. If you're fighting the rebels as an imperial soldier, you're going to be bombarded by friendly artillery. And if you're not fighting the rebels, you get to watch your mates in other detachments fight and die without being allowed to go and help them. But that's how the imperial set things up. And then on the 23rd of September, there was one final negotiation between the Rebels and the Imperials. The Imperials demanded the unconditional surrender of the Rebels, while the Rebels attempted to negotiate for the life of their leader, Saigo, who they knew would be a goner if he was taken by the Imperials. But no, the Imperials would not spare Saigo, although they did offer to spare anyone who betrayed him and turned him over to them. They said that if the Rebels didn't surrender unconditionally, however, by that evening, then they would begin their attack. Now, this news got back to Saigo. He was told the result of these last-ditch negotiation attempts, and I have to say, he took the news pretty well. He couldn't surrender. His honour wouldn't permit it. And so, as a result, he knew that he was a dead man walking, as indeed did the 500 or so other samurai that still remained by his side loyal unto death. So, Saigo gathered his senior officers, and together they all got on the Saki. Seriously, this is not a joke. They all knocked back a few in preparation for the fight, bit of liquid courage, and then they prepared themselves for battle. They didn't have much in the way of weaponry. They had very few guns and precious little ammunition, Uh, and in any case, they had nothing to defend themselves from artillery. And sure enough... At midnight, the Imperial guns began to roar and artillery started to pound down onto Shirayama on the hill where Saigo and his rebels were to make their last stand. For three hours, the Imperials kept up their bombardment and then, at around three o'clock in the morning on the 24th of September, they advanced on foot. Saigo and his rebels fired a few shots with what guns they had remaining, but... It did little to slow the advance, and so, instead, these rebels, the very last of the samurai, they drew their swords and they charged down the hill, one last time to meet the Imperials head-on. These samurai were the last of an elite military class that had ruled Japan for centuries, bred for war, skilled in hand-to-hand combat, unstoppable killing machines. And as these 500 samurai closed on the imperial soldiers, none of whom had any training in swordsmanship or hand-to-hand fighting, blood ran freely as the last of the samurai made their very last stand. They cut the imperial soldiers to ribbons and halted the imperial advance. The mighty warriors of feudal Japan left one final mark on the world before, as you might expect, history finally closed the door on them. After all, they were just 500 against 30,000. They had no hope of winning, and they knew it, but they went down with swords ringing and blood flowing, surrounded by the horror and the glory of combat. For each imperial soldier they killed, another was there to take his place, and before long, the samurai were the ones falling, and there was no one to replace them. After three hours of fighting, less than 50 samurai remained, and we're not sure if Saigo was amongst them or not. Some sources indicate that he was killed in the initial artillery barrages, while others say that he was badly wounded in the hand-to-hand fighting and instead was taken away from the battle by one of his samurai, Bepu Shinsuki. Some of these stories tell us that Saigo committed seppuku himself, while others maintain that he didn't, that he couldn't, that he was too weak and injured to perform ritual suicide. And so to spare him the indignity and dishonor of capture, Bepu cut off Saigo's head instead. Either way, Saigo did not fall into imperial hands, not alive at any rate. And with Saigo dead and with only a handful of samurai remaining, they came together for one final suicidal charge. And these last remnants of Japan's feudal era, swords drawn and raised, charged the enemy lines one last time, and were shot to pieces by Imperial Gatling guns. The old came up against the new, and resoundingly, the new won the day. The Battle of Shiriyama was, rather obviously, the end of the Satsuma Rebellion, and was also the end of the Age of Samurai in Japan. For better or worse, modernization was Japan's future, and the final holdover from the days of feudal authority had perished in the thunder of heavy artillery and cannon fire. The Satsuma Rebellion was a turning point in Japanese history for many reasons. Not only did it mark the end of feudal Japan and the supremacy of the samurai class, it demonstrated once and for all that Japan's future lay in a new direction. After holding on to feudal government well into the 19th century, after keeping itself closed off from the world, Japan was dragged into international affairs and forced to modernize. The Satsuma Rebellion was the final death throw of the old ways in Japan, and its end marked the beginning of a new chapter in Japanese history. And this new chapter was written with very, very different rules, thanks to the Satsuma Rebellion and the impact that this ill-fated revolt had. So with that in mind, let's go through some of the most important effects of the Satsuma Rebellion here. This list isn't exhaustive by any means, but it will go to show you just how impactful this event was in Japanese history. First of all, the failure of the Satsuma Rebellion demonstrated unquestionably the power of the new centralized imperial government, which had convincingly seen off the greatest threat to its existence by beating Saigo and his rebels like this. The power of the Imperial Japanese Army, armed as they were with modern weapons, had clearly been demonstrated. This army was ready to enforce the will of the Imperial government. The Emperor now wielded real, hard power through this army, strongly increasing Imperial authority throughout Japan. The abject failure of the Satsuma Rebellion sent a clear message to other political dissidents about the futility of fighting the Imperial government, and as a result... Japan became more politically centralised than ever before and previous regionally held power dwindled into nothingness as regionalism gave way to national unity. Secondly, the defeat of the rebels, who were fighting for Japan's old ways in many respects, showed how the country was going to modernise like it or not. The imperial government had high aspirations to bring Japan into the modern era with railroads and telegraphs and industry and everything else. It was a reformist government looking to bring change to every aspect of Japanese society, military, politics and industry. And standing in the way of this reform, as the Satsuma rebellion proved with its failure, was futile. So, Japan modernised, and very quickly too, it left the old ways behind and the country transformed. Japanese industry and infrastructure thrived, social and legal systems underwent enormous change, and with a centralised conscript army backing it up, you could not stand in the way of imperial will. Thirdly, there's the extinction of the samurai class and the end of feudal Japan. Samurai, who had previously wielded an enormous amount of both military and political power, they had, with the Satsuma Rebellion, been thrown on the scrap heap of history. The imperial government formally abolished the samurai class and instead... Centralized Japan's military forces under the imperial banner. And as we talked about just a second ago, this also served to weaken the previous regional power structures based on the rule of samurai and in doing so consolidated centralized imperial power. However, even though samurai as a class of people died out, the myth and the legend surrounding samurai is alive and well. Their historical image is still a very, very big part of Japanese culture, of course, even today. Finally, there were some much more immediate impacts of the rebellion that nonetheless changed Japan forever. Most notably, the fact that the war was enormously expensive, costing the imperial government millions. This forced the country off the gold standard. The imperials began to print paper currency in order to fund themselves rather than go bankrupt. National debt ballooned out of control. The government was forced to sell off assets on the cheap to stay afloat. Government-owned industry was pawned to the merchant class. Mines, factories, other enterprises, they were sold just to make ends meet. And this led to the rise of the Zaibatsu, massive business conglomerates that would grow to completely dominate the Japanese economy until Japan's defeat in the Second World War. Before then, the Zaibatsu were a huge part of Japanese financial, social, political, and even military affairs and ended up with a very poor public image due to their cutthroat dealings. Eventually, however, they, uh, they were dismantled by the Allies after Japan surrendered in 1945. But all the same, they're not completely dead. They've been replaced by Kairitsu, a system of business alliances that still dominates Japan's economic affairs to this very day. So it's plain to see, for these reasons and others besides, that the Satsuma Rebellion was indeed a huge moment in Japanese history. With the Meiji Restoration ending Sokaku and dragging the country into a modernized international community, the Satsuma Rebellion was the last stand of those wanting to hold on to the old ways. But it failed, and Japan's future took a very different path. Into the 20th century, due to its strong, centralized government and rapid modernization, Japan would emerge as a mighty global power. Although, of course, it made some very unfortunate choices as it did so. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of the Satsuma Rebellion. Once again, thanks go out to alert listeners Lucas Sticks and David Schultz. Uh, thanks so much for the suggestion, you two. And if you want to follow in their exalted footsteps, I love to hear from listeners whether you've got a topic suggestion or a bit of feedback or if you're having issues accessing the feeds or anything like that, please let me know. History.net, the contact form there. I've had a couple of people get in touch saying that uh, the feeds somehow still aren't working properly. It's really important if you're on the old feed, I put a little note on the old feed now, if you're seeing that note come up on uh, on your platform of choice, please let me know so I can get it fixed um otherwise great to hear from everyone thank you so much for all the emails that are coming in uh if you want to support the show of course same stuff i say every week the patreon is uh, there if you want to get in uh, get involved with that patreon.com slash half hour history gain access to all sorts of stuff behind the scenes things uh, ad free listening of course uh, in addition to show notes uncut episodes early access uh, and exclusive merch um and inclusive merch available via tpublic head to the uh, head to the website i i was i actually listened to the outro of an old episode recently to see how much i've changed i really haven't these outros are all the same but ages ago i set up a bit.ly i think it's bit.ly slash h a h merch not 100% sure on that. Just type that in, see where it takes you. It'll be fun anyway. We'll see what happens. Anyway, uh, thank you to thank you to all the listeners, new and old alike. It's good to have people writing in saying that they've just discovered the show. Uh, always love to hear how you've stumbled across the show, whether it was recommended to you by a friend or an enemy or someone that feels largely ambivalent about you or whether you came across it on Spotify recommendations. Love to hear how the show is getting out there. And of course, as I say every week, please tell your friends, tell your enemies. Tell people about whom you feel largely ambivalent. Be the person who that person emails me about saying they've just discovered the show. Uh, anyway, going to close out the episode this week, not with a question on Reddit, but something that uh, you may have come across before. It's done the rounds on Twitter. It's one of those things that you may have seen. Um, originally composed by uh, an internet user with the fantastic name of Blazing Bev Crusher, right? Um, who who figured out a quite a weird set of historical circumstances um, that, broadly speaking, I did a little bit of research to make sure this isn't total nonsense, but broadly speaking, this this, this is true. It is at least conceivable, right? Here's what Blaise and Bev Crusher wrote a couple of years ago. <clears throat> okay, so. The samurai were officially abolished as a caste in Japanese society during the Meiji Restoration in 1867. The first ever fax machine... The printing telegraph was invented in 1843 and Abraham Lincoln was famously assassinated at Ford's Theatre in 1865. Which means that there was a 22-year window in which a samurai could have sent a fax to Abraham Lincoln.